Today, we see Jesus heading back to his hometown. He heads home to Nazareth. And heading home can have a mixture of positive feelings or it could have a, maybe some negative feelings, depending on what home life has been like for you. For some of you, you really look forward to going home. You've got like your favorite meal in mind or favorite places to visit or friends that you get to see. And for some of you, you are avoiding home at all costs. You don't have warm, fuzzy memories or thoughts. Some of you came from dysfunctional homes. Some of you came from abusive homes, absent homes. Some of you don't even know really like what you would call home. And so you don't even like that I'm talking about it right now because it just makes you feel uncomfortable. So regardless of what you think of going home, we can probably all agree, regardless if it's positive or negative, it is a mixed bag of nuts when we start talking about home. And I think that's true for Jesus. I actually think there's a little connection, like a, a slight connection between Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, and Tulare, my hometown. I think there's a little connection. They're both small towns, rural, agriculture, communities. Also, I think they were towns where everybody knows your name. And that means also they know all of your business as well. Some of you know this. If you, if you want any kind of knowledge about like Tolarians and the, the history of or the people and when they moved and what their connections are, you can check in with our human Wikipedia, the Jacobos up here, and they will give you the, the lowdown on everything that is Tulare. I think also another connection that Nazareth and Tulare share is that there, there seems to be low expectations from the rest of the world for what gets produced in these places, what comes out of these places. Tulare's been the butt of many jokes that I've heard. Even when people try to pronounce Tulare, it becomes a bit of a joke, like, Tulare, Tulare. And it's like, I just said Tulare. You know how to say it. Like, why? Obviously, you're working on your stand-up routine. Jesus' disciple, one of them, he like handpicks this guy, Nathaniel. And when Nathaniel finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth, this is what he says, John 1, 46, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is the reputation. This is where Jesus has come from. And I actually think that Jesus has a special place in his heart for small towns. And I also think that he knows the pain and discomfort and difficulty that can come from there too. Jesus was a Nazareth kid, and not much was expected out of Nazareth kids. But things have changed for little Jesus. He's no longer baby Jesus. He's no longer toddler Jesus. He is doing amazing things. He's gathered a huge crowd of followers at this point in his life, and his ministry. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. He's doing what I would consider some amazing things at this point. And you would think that coming home, he would have like a hero's welcome. Like, that's our boy. Yeah, he's one of us. Like, T-shirts made and everything. Like, yeah, we're going to make a statue and murals and come on. That's our boy. But that's not what Jesus gets when he comes home. What Jesus actually receives, what we find out in this text, is rejection, offense, and unbelief. Welcome home, Jesus. Happy holidays to you. Jesus showed up 
in his hometown, and he was going to teach in the synagogue. This was his custom. This was what he would do. He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. And so he shows up, and he's going to teach in his hometown. He's got home court advantage. Come on. This is it. He's going to knock it out of the park. In Matthew, we don't see or get to read what he actually taught in the synagogue. We get to see the reaction and the response of what he taught, but not actually what he spoke on that Sabbath day. We do get to see in Luke chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible, you can flip over there. If not, it's going to be on the screen. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. This is the message that garnered that response from his neighbors and childhood friends. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop. That was it. Jesus is saying a lot here without saying a lot. This is classic Jesus. What he's saying in a nutshell is, I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. I'm the one that you learned about in Sunday school. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you've been praying for. I'm here. And now that I'm here, what I'm bringing is good news. I have authority to tell you these things. I am actually going to liberate the captives. What he means by that is, I'm going to forgive you of sins. I'm going to be the one that opens up the eyes of the blind physically and spiritually. I'm the one that's going to bring freedom from those who are oppressed by sin and Satan. And I'm also the one that's going to bring the year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. So in their their history, Israel would have known this, that the year of jubilee was an amazing year. It was a good year. Every 50 years, everybody got very excited. This is the kind of thing that you, like, are waiting for, mostly because you've got yourself in big trouble and you need a big rescue. And so every 50 years, the year of Jubilee comes, and that means all debts are released. Come on. Somebody say hallelujah about that. I'm waiting. All right. If you you lost your property... If you, if, you, if you got kind of crazy in Texas Hold'em and you gave up a field or something, all property that was lost returned to you. If, you. if you got into trouble and so you had to put yourself into servitude, you became a slave to somebody because you just couldn't make ends meet and you wanted your family provided for, you're now free. You're released from that. And it's also a year that's dedicated, a whole year that's dedicated to rest. Come on. This sounds like amazing. Come on. A year of naps. This is what Jesus is saying. This is happening because of me. I'm bringing this about. And the people are amazed. Another word that's used there is astonished. But it's not like a good amazement or a good astonishment. 
like. It's not what's actually being communicated. What's happening inside of people's hearts is this. The Greek word is eklektos. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I had to look this up and also do the Google-like button where you listen to how they say it. Eklektos. It means to strike with panic or shock. It means to be emotionally stalled. You are shut down at this point. I don't know what to do with my hands. I'm not sure. You just go numb. When somebody gives you certain news and you're like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with that. Some of you have been astonished this week with news that you've gotten. Like, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what to do. This, if this is true, this changes everything. And I'm very uneasy about this moment. This is Jesus at his finest Eclectos all over the place. Every time he opens his mouth, what did you just say? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Jesus produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. This is what Jesus is stirring up in his hometown. There's no mild approval at this point. And what it does inside of people, because when you get uncomfortable, you get defensive. Or maybe this is just my move. And they start asking questions that aren't really questions. They're more like statements. And you know these questions. You've been asked these questions before, or maybe you've asked these questions of other people. Kind of like, are you going to wear that out tonight? Did you pay money for that haircut? Those are the kind of questions that aren't questions. You're saying something more than you're actually inquiring of something. And these question statements about Jesus are flying from his neighbors and his childhood friends. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Who do you think you are? Mr. Big Shot showing up back from college, going to change the world all of a sudden. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, talk about just low jabs are coming his way. Like, oh, yeah, we know your dad, right? We know, like, you're just a carpenter's son. This also could have been a jab at saying, like, because this was a small town and they know everybody's business, Joseph was not his real father. And this could have been a way to say, like, look, we know you're illegitimate. We know your story. We did the math. You know, you couldn't have been. Joseph couldn't have been your dad. Some of you did the math at some point. were like, hey, mom, I got questions for you. <laughs> You're illegitimate. We know your secrets, Jesus. We know who you really are. Isn't his mother Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, aren't all his sisters with us? In a sense, what they're saying is you're just like us. Who do you think that you are? You came from the same place. You have the same messed up family as us. You have no formal education, no training. You have no way possible to be anything better than what we are here. We know who you really are, Jesus. And the people of Nazareth got stuck on themselves. So much so they couldn't believe that anyone like them could be anything different than them. They limited themselves, but more than that, they limited what God could do, what God could raise up. They put themselves in a box, and so they put God in a box. This is where that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, comes ringing into my mind. 
They reject Jesus, and so they miss completely the amazing news and offer that he has in front of them. He's going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, and they totally miss it. Matthew 13, 57 to 58, they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Not because he was bothered, not because he was put out, not because he was offended. He couldn't do it because they blocked him. Their lack of faith did not allow him to do what he intended to do there. Rejection of Jesus will lead to offense or hatred of Jesus, and it will inevitably end in a hard heart of unbelief. This is the slippery slope that we see. Because of our rejection or our offense of Jesus, this could be very true for some of us this morning. Ultimately, it will lead to our unbelief. Like, ah, it can't be true. It can't be true. Even in small ways, we could be doing this. Ah, this is this too good of news. I don't know if it's that good of news. When we do that, Jesus cannot make good on the promise that he intends to provide and make good on for us has nothing to do with him. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew eleven sixteen, 16, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's promising this. You will be blessed. You will be filled with joy. You will receive life. You will receive freedom. You will receive true rest if you receive me. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Jesus will make good on everything he promises. If we obey, if we believe, then we will receive freedom. We will receive forgiveness. We will receive new life. This is a promise, a guarantee with an exclamation point. Jesus also promises us that we will receive the same fate as him. So I know we're all feeling good, like, yeah, life, yeah, freedom, yeah, forgiveness. This also means that we will receive rejection, offense, and unbelief. This, too, is a promise that will be yes and amen if we follow Christ. People will reject you because of your loyalty of Jesus. People will be offended by your decision to actually take God at his word, actually rearrange your life to match what he says, and they will refuse to believe that you could be anything other than what they believe you to be, what they've seen you to be in your life. This, too, is a promise of Jesus, so you don't get, like, too comfortable this morning. If you thought everybody got like a Mercedes or something after this. John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. First and foremost... 
what we see this morning in the Word is that Jesus was rejected by everyone so that you and I would never be rejected by God. This is the good news this morning. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. In the same prophetic book of Isaiah 53, this is what it says of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus is making good on every word in this book. Every word ever uttered about him. First and foremost, Jesus was rejected so that we would be accepted. Second, right after that, we ourselves should prepare for rejection. 1 John 3.13 Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Don't, oh my goodness, what is this? I thought that everybody would like us. We're nice, clean-cut Christians for crying out loud. We love babies, and we do good things, and we build hospitals, and we went on a mission trip. Why don't you love us? It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. If you're experiencing rejection right now, you've made some decisions in your life that have actually severed you from your family. You've made some decisions in life where you've lost friends. You've made decisions in life to follow Christ, and you're wondering, like, I don't even know if I like myself right now. This is getting hard. Mark 13, 13. Take heart. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Promise. Promise. This is a promise to us. Stand firm. I know it doesn't feel good, but so does he. Stand firm with him. The key in this scripture is because of me. Lean into this. Because if the world hates you because you're a jerk, well, that's on you. You got a bad attitude, the world hates you because you're self-righteous, that's on you. Okay? But if the world hates you because of Jesus, because you're just following, you're just believing, you're just taking one step in front of the other, stand firm and you will be saved. Delayed Deliverance is not non-deliverance. He is coming to save and rescue you. We should also expect this life that we live to be offensive. When you follow Jesus, you are going against the grain of the world. 
We're no longer in the same stream. We're going upstream now. And the world, surprise, surprise, doesn't care about you. They just want to control you, actually. They want to own you. They want to make a profit off of you. That's what you are. I know that you think that your iPhone likes you. It doesn't. It's trying to squeeze every dollar it can out of you. That's what's happening. That's what the world is interested in, you being a cog in a wheel so that they get rich and that they get famous and that they get whatever. This is the world's agenda for us. They didn't kill Jesus because he was a good moral teacher. They did not crucify him for that. They killed him because he claimed his authority was superior to all other authorities. His kingship, his lordship, his way was the way. Nothing else. Jesus came to bring peace between God and man. This is true. He also came with a sword. And it was not for looks. It was for war. We follow Jesus with whatever he says. He says it, we obey it. His law rules supreme in our lives as Christians. This isn't a democracy. We're not voting on which of these commands we like or is culturally relevant for us right now. It's a yes and amen from us. Everything he says, every command. His law rules supreme, and his law is love. This is what his law is. We love others as God has loved us. Jesus is our supreme example of this. Being crucified on a cross, what does he do? Oh, he forgives his executioners. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Come on. Who's like him? This is the same love that we're called to embody and live out with those who have rejected us in this life. As a church, we're not like coming around you and patting you on your back and like your enemies become our enemies. No, we will pray for your enemies like you will pray for our enemies. This is what we're spurring ourselves onto is greater love, not greater safety. Do you hear that this morning? We love like him. But we have nothing to do with the godless ways of this world. Do not get comfortable in this place. We love like him, but we have nothing to do with the godless ways of this world. We don't make friends with it. We don't make allies with it. We don't pet it. We have nothing to do with it. We've been born again. We're new creations. We do not fit into the system of the world any longer. So stop trying to. This is Jesus's word and invitation for us this morning. Stop exerting so much energy, energy to try to fit into a place where you don't belong. I'm preparing a place for you. This is the message version of 1 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Don't become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership. That's war. 
Is light best friends with dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Who would think of setting up pagan idols in God's holy temple? But that's exactly what we are. Each of us, a temple in whom God lives. God himself put it this way. I'll live in them, move into them. I'll be their God, and they will be my people. So leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all for myself. I'll be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. The world will reject us, and they will be offended by us, and we will love them, and we will serve them, and we will plead forgiveness for them, just like Jesus. The only way that Jesus was able to do this is the only way that we'll be able to do this, which is to know who we truly are. And he said it at the end of that verse. We are sons and daughters. That's who we are. There will always be doubters in your life. You're probably very aware of this. There will always be those who have something to say, the commentary that you'll get tomorrow about who you really are. Maybe you're the worst commentary you're giving yourself. But when you said yes to Jesus, you're leaning in to follow his commands. You're leaning in to follow his ways. Your life is changed. You are no longer who you were. This is the truth. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. There are going to be people who knew you when you were just a little runt in Nazareth. They know all about your story. They know all about your past. Some of those people are in this church right now. They know your dirty secrets. And maybe that's what you're always going to be to them, is your track record. But that's not who you are to God. That's not who you are in this family. There will be people who doubt the legitimacy of your new creation. But you can't be one of those people. You can't add your voice to that choir any longer. We're all in the middle of what theology calls sanctification, and we sang that this morning. This is my definition for us. The long, painfully joyful process of becoming more like Jesus and less like any version of us we've ever seen. Jesus has made us a new creation, and he is walking us deeper and further into this way. So stop fighting him and start following him closer. For some of you, you're stuck in the past. Like this morning, as soon as we started talking about home, my goodness, we lost you. And you just have this rehearsal of everything that you've done. You've been stuck on the past of who you've been. And as a result, you struggle to believe the present truth of who you are in Christ. And as a result of that, you will not be able to see or believe the promise of future glory God has for you. You're not going to even stay this version of yourself much longer if you stick with Christ. It gets better from glory to glory, from better to better. This is his plan for you. He's not going to leave you the same little rugrat that you are right now. Fully mature sons and daughters is what he's after, and it is what he will have. 
Those who are stuck on repeating their mind of who you were, what disqualifies you, why you're counted out. You're making your sin bigger than Jesus' resurrection, and that's a problem. Some of you are about to make a move. You've been carrying your past like a ball and chain. And I believe that God's about to shift something in the way that you see him and see yourself. And that ball and chain is actually going to be held like a holy platform that now the good news is preached from. Some of you, you've been hiding in in the shadows of like fear, like I'm going to get found out. Like you have no idea what I've done. And so you've just tucked yourself away. And you've actually started reverting to like a self-righteousness, like, oh, I'll just do enough and just kind of make up. But you don't know. I can't, I've got to keep up this song and dance because if they really knew who I was and what I'm capable of, then surely I would not be welcomed here or given a donut or said hello to or greeted. You have no idea. And some of you are actually about to make a move and Christ is going to stand you up in his radiance and glory, and you will be operating as true sons and daughters in this next season. This is God's intention for you. This is God's intention for me. The way that Jesus was able to move forward and not be bogged down by what his family and hometown neighbors and friends said about him is because he knew and he believed he had heard the voice of his true father. Earlier in Matthew, this is what God said to him. This is my son. This is my child in whom I'm well pleased. If the voices of Nazareth, if the voices of your past, of your family, are louder than the voice of your true father, then you will never live confidently in who God is and who he's made you to be. And that's what we're going to pray into right now. Because some of you, it's like, okay, then give me the game plan. What do I do? You receive it. That's what you do. It's the good news. It's the gospel. You don't earn anything. It's what Sam read this morning. It's a gift. You can't boast about it. I know you're really good at some things, but not saving yourself. That's reserved for him. That's why we sing. That's why we raise our hands. That's why we clap. That's why we, he's worth it. Because he did what you couldn't do. I believe that the, the truth is Jesus came to a small town to preach the good news, and that's what he does here in Tulare every Sunday. He still shows up to a bunch of nobodies and says, I believe that you are someone because I've made you to be that. So would you stand to your feet? If you're here and, and this is like, a, as some people say, like it feels like there's just, somebody's like reading your mail right now. Like, oh man, like... I do this nightly. I rehearse like the highlight reel, which is really like the negative reel of my life over and over and over again. I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to stop that this morning. Maybe you just found yourself in a season and you're finding some kind of strange comfort in that. God wants to stop that this morning as a father. He wants to say, please stop beating yourself up. I wouldn't let anyone else do this to you. I'm not going to let you do this to yourself this morning. So Jesus, we're coming to you. We, we, we believe you. 
Would you help us with our unbelief this morning? We believe that we're new creations, but man, when we look in the mirror, it sure looks like the old man. It sure looks like the old woman. It sure, I mean, what comes out of my mouth, I I wish it was something different than when I was an insecure, scared, didn't know myself teenager, but dang it, it keeps coming. The wounds that we've been inflicted with from our family and and from our decisions, Lord, you have and are rescuing us from those this morning. So for those who feel stuck, if this is you, just receive it. And you can even, if you want to engage your body, you can just open your hands to receive this because it's a good freaking gift this morning. God wants to break this old cycle of rehearsing how bad you are, and he wants to replace that with a reel of how good he is. Would you start proclaiming in a different way this season of how good God is? We're not saying bury your head in the sand. No, you, you did bad things. You did terrible things. No doubt about it. But guess what? God's done greater things in your life. God's shown up in bigger ways than those failures. And so we want to rehearse that from here on out. Lord, I pray for those that don't even know you as Father this morning that are here, God, that they would, they would receive you right now. If you're here and you're like, this sounds great, this sounds great, keep giving me a pep talk. This is not a pep talk. This is an invitation to true life now and for all eternity. And it only comes from Jesus. And what you have to do is turn your face to him and say, I receive you this morning. I receive this gift. I receive it. And I let it overshadow and overtake everything that I have done, everything that I have thought I would was or wanted to be, you now get control of that. It is that simple. For those of us who have, who've done it 30 years ago, 40 years ago, would you restore unto us the joy of your salvation again right now this morning? For those of us who have been walking with you for a few years, restore the joy of your salvation into our hearts one more time this morning, Lord. Set us back on the true path. Set us back in, in your ways, Lord. It is a year of jubilee for us. It is a perpetual year of jubilee now that we live in you, Christ. We are at rest. The biggest spiritual thing that some of you can do today is take a nap. Listen to me. It's true. The world does not revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around your success or your failure. It revolves around the authority that's been placed under Jesus' feet. This is it. So you go home and you rest. You go home and you take a nap. I mean, work it out if you've got like somebody at home that has a list for you things to do. But you rest in Christ. You even, you even, you even gladly take that on and say, I'm going to serve in a new way. Not to get something or to be someone, but because I am a loved son. I am a loved daughter. And I can do anything because he's strengthening me to do that. I can forgive my mother because he's strengthening me. I can forgive the oppressor because he's strengthening me. I can let go of my past mistakes because he's strengthening me. It's not me just deciding, oh, yeah, I'm not going to be a jerk anymore. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to think about that anymore. No, we give you our life this morning again, Jesus. Take control, Lord. Lead us and guide us, Holy Spirit. We need you. We need you, Holy Spirit. We receive just a fresh filling of you again this morning.